Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 8, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Oh boy, so today... (laughs) Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you very weird you sound so weary <laughs> i am weary it's been a week yeah uh, for everyone who doesn't know we're recording this the day after it was announced that roe v wade was uh was uh taken away from from us yeah uh, uh, women don't have rights um <laughs> so that's fun <laughs> yeah we I'm, just had a th- 30-minute discussion before hitting record about how angry we are. Yeah, I'm becoming a completely unhinged woman by the second. So, today. (laughs) (laughs) Today, with much fury. Yeah. Um, By the way, this is good morning, Nancy. Not great morning, Nancy, because of (laughs) the state of things. So, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, today we'll be discussing the year 2000's satirical thriller horror film American Psycho. It is based on the 1991 novel by Brett Easton Ellis. Um, the film was written by Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, and it was directed by Mary Heron. And the film stars Christian Bale, Chloe Savini, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, and Reese Witherspoon. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary for this film? Sure can. Patrick Bateman is a wealthy investment banker living in New York City in the late 1980s. A yuppie through and through, Bateman struggles to assimilate while having strong desires to torture and kill. Will Bateman follow through with his lust for carnage? And if he does, will he ever be caught? Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay, so let's get into the production of this film. So like I mentioned before, right, in this, in the production or the opening of this uh, episode, uh, this was based on Brett Easton Ellis's 1991 novel of the same name. And wow, this book pissed a lot of people off. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, I guess I knew that people didn't really like the book, but I guess I didn't realize how much. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in the book, Women Make Horror, edited by the amazing Alison Pierce, there is a chapter written by Dr. Laura Mee called Murders and Adaptations, Gender in American Psycho. Mee writes, 
Bateman's murderous tendencies are laid out in lurid detail throughout Ellis's book, and he does not discriminate in selecting victims. But he especially revels in the torture and mutilation of women. This sadism features in long chapters in Ellis's novel, where graphic accounts of, of sex suddenly switch to gruesome sequences of explicit violence, continually narrated, narrated in first person. The book's sexualized violence ensured a backlash from critics, feminist activist groups, and even its intended publisher, who dropped the novel after a leaked chapter published in Time magazine invoked Irie. Reviewers dubbed it obscene and accused Ellis of crimes against women, and Tammy Bruce of the National Organization of Women called it a, quote, how-to novel on the torture and dismemberment of women, unquote. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Stuart Gordon and David Cronenberg were attached to direct, uh, but eventually Mary Heron was brought on board. And as writer Guinevere Turner suggests, this might have been done on purpose as a marketing ploy uh, to have the book, to have a book considered brutally and dangerously misogynistic adapted into a film written and directed by two women. So uh, I think it was like a way for them to make up for the fact that they were making this into a movie. So they had two women at the helm. Wow. All right. Yeah. And not only two women, but uh, one of the women, Guinevere Turner, is an openly queer woman and has been since the 80s, I think. Wow. Yeah. So she's a lesbian, which is okay. This is really funny because she plays Elizabeth in the film. (gasps) Guinevere Turner does. And she says, I'm not a lesbian. (laughs) Oh, my God. And she did that to be funny because she is. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So she, the writer of this movie, is in the film as Elizabeth. Um, But listen, according to me, during filming, protests by the National Organization of Women and the Feminist Majority Foundation, FMF, recalled responses to Ellis's book with the FMF insisting that there were no redeeming qualities to a misogynist product like this. This reaction was to an idea of what the film would be, shaped by the reception of the novel alone. In response to the backlash, as David Elridge has argued, the discourse surrounding and justifying the film was deliberately shaped to retrieve the novel from its trash reputation, at once distancing the adaptation from the perceived misogyny of its source, while also contributing to the growing revelation of Ellis's book as a misunderstood satire of the 1980s consumption culture. The involvement of female filmmakers was further promoted as a corrective measure, unquote. Hmm. Right. So it it was just them trying to be like, no, look, see, like we got women making this movie. Uh, so don't worry, you know, which I think in the end was the best choice because I will talk about in a minute. Uh, they really <laughs> they really made this movie what it what it is and why it's so popular, I think. Yes, 100 percent. According to Laura Mee, Christian Bale was not 
the producer's number one choice, uh, or any choice for that matter. They wanted Leonardo DiCaprio, even though Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner wrote the script with Bale in mind and fought for him to be in the film throughout pre-production. DiCaprio eventually dropped out after famous feminist and political activist Gloria Steinem told him not to do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think she said something like, your reputation is going to be ruined. Like your stardom is going to be ruined if you do this because women don't want people to be this. Because he had done Titanic, I think. Yep. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Well, you know what? Thanks, Gloria Steinem, because this would have been a completely different film if it wasn't Christian Bale. Like it would not have been the same film. No, it would not have. It probably would not have been as good for sure. No. Um, so according to Laura Mee, other actors, including Johnny Depp, Billy Crudup, and Tom Cruise were considered. Cruise ultimately inspired Bale with a particular energy, a, quote, very intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes, unquote. <laughs> Isn't that, but doesn't that make so much sense now? Yeah. Now that you see how, how Christian Bale acts in that film, the way he laughs is such a Tom Cruise laugh. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it's, it's genius. Um, oh, my God. A fitting muse given Ellis's Bateman in his book is starstruck by Tom Cruise, fluffing a chance meeting in the elevator. Oh, my God. Even, even more wild. Yeah. Um, Heron's insistence on Bale makes sense. His performance by, ter- by turns comically manic and emotionally blank emphasizes the black comedy and horror of the character while embodying his facade, the performative construction of the personality he presents himself as the idea of Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, an entity, something illusory. In her study of Heron's biopics about controversial female figures, including Betty Page and Valerie Solanas, Linda Badgley argues that the director deconstructs this great man genre through a social-cultural perspective. She rejects the popular psychology associated with therapy culture and instead sustains a postmodern understanding of the self as a social construct and a Foucauldian view of mores and sexuality as culturally scripted while emphasizing performativity. The same is true for interpretation of Bateman, and she explains her casting decision. Other actors were too concerned with the character's history, wanting to develop psychological motivation. Christian Bale instead saw Bateman as the construct, the abstraction that Ellis had intended, and that Heron and Turner wanted to emphasize. Wow. Me goes on to say, Bale imagined him as pathetic and certainly not a cool guy. This perf- His performance has been described as hammy, but Bateman is not vastly different in the book, where he frequently embarrass him- embarrasses himself in awkward social situations with his clumsy attempts at smoothness. Bale's performance allows the character to be more readily mocked as he emphasizes Bateman's loser nature. Turner noted how men had approached her since the film's release, claiming, wow, I am Patrick Bateman. Ah. Are you saying you're a dork or a serial killer? Became her standard response, unquote. (laughs) 
According to Tatiana Tenriro, uh, Heron and Bale, in character as Bateman, met with uh, Ellis for dinner, an experience Ellis said was unnerving since it was the first time he had met someone pretending to be the monster that he created. Wow. I know, that must have been pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> According to Calum Russell, for the subsequent interview scenes featuring Donald Kimball, Heron shot three takes and requested that Willem Dafoe act differently in each of them. Dafoe acted as if Kimball knew Bateman was Alan's killer in the first, only suspected him in the second, and did not suspect anything at all in the third. And these three takes were then blended in post-production to confuse the audience. Wow. I know, that was pretty clever. Yes. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, though some outdoor shots were captured in New York City, where the film is set, the majority of filming took place in downtown Toronto and a variety of scenes shot in bars and restaurants around the city. Anti-violence advocates petitioned Toronto City Hall to deny the production permission to film in Toronto and organize protests because of reports that Paul Bernardo, who committed serial murders and rapes in Toronto, owned a copy of the novel. As a result, the production faced difficulties securing shooting locations. The scenes in Bateman's office had to be filmed on a soundstage because the owners of the building that Heron intended to film uh, feared negative publicity. Heron had been unaware of the novel's connection to Paul Bernardo and the case and sympathized with the protesters, but reasoned that she did not want to put horrible mayhem on the screen. There's something to be here that hasn't really been done. A portrait of the late 80s that's worth putting on the screen is basically what she said. Mm -hmm. Uh, To avoid protests, though, the production removed the title from daily call sheets and parking permits, unquote. So in case you aren't aware of who Paul Bernardo is, he was one half of the Ken and Barbie killers. And it was one of the most tragic and bizarre cases I've ever heard. And that, and it all took place in um, Toronto, Canada. Yeah. So, um, American psycho was released at Sundance in January of 2000, where polarized attendees and critics But on April 14th, 2000, the film was released in the U.S. and Canada, and it was a huge success. With a budget of only $7 million, the film made $34 million at the box office. Holy cats. Yep. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, in December 2009, Bloody Disgusting ranked the film at number 19 in its list of the top 20 horror films of the decade, with the article praising Christian Bale's disturbing, darkly hilarious turn as serial killer Manhattan businessman Patrick Bateman, a role that, in hindsight, couldn't have been played by any other actor. At its best, the film reflects our own narcissism and our shallow American culture that it spawned from with piercing effectiveness. Much of the credit for this can go to director Mary Heron, whose off-kilter tendencies are a good complement to Ellis's unique style, unquote. And finally, uh, according to Dr. Laura Mee, It is not my intention to claim that Heron and Turner redeemed the novel in some way. Indeed, the filmmakers have defended Ellis and his book against misconceptions that it is inherently misogynistic and argue for recognition that showing or writing depictable acts is not the same as endorsing them. Rather, I suggest that the filmmakers made palatable 
that which had been unpalatable for so many, certainly for a mainstream audience and possibly for some female viewers, unquote. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the big key there, right? They made something that women thought was, they couldn't enjoy. And now I think most women enjoy this film. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but let's get into our discussion. Abby, would you talk about young urban professionals, 1980s yuppie culture? Hell yeah. So uh, the 1980s served us a big helping of the glamorization of these yuppies, young urban professionals dressed in suits and working in offices in big cities, doing things like trading stock, practicing law, and participating in Reagan's free market. Uh, Reagan's presidency has a lot to do with this film and we'll start talking about that in just a bit Uh, but according to encyclopedia.com yuppies were the product of an expanding economy and a generation of americans known as (sighs) baby boomers (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and these people were settling into middle age although yuppies attracted a great deal of attention in the press as symbols of the rising economy promoted by the Reagan administration from 1981 to 1989, they were not a majority. At most, there were only 20 million yuppies in America. Wow. Yeah. Many white Americans also felt distanced from the yuppie lifestyles. Conservative Christians became increasingly organized during the decade. Thanks to the political support of the Reagan administration, Jerry Falwell, uh, who is still alive, formed, (laughs) he formed a group that he coined the moral majority to present uh, fundamentalist Christian issues. And televangelists preached over the television to millions A much smaller group of young white Americans organized into groups that protested against the gains made by blacks, Hispanics, and other minority groups. And these skinheads, as they were known, sometimes violently attacked minorities. So all of this is kind of going on at the same time in the 1980s. It was a decade of social extremes. Yuppies, Christians, and skinheads all laid claim to media attention, and they all had a great influence on American popular culture. Yikes. Um, I'll never forget when you you texted me that you had a theory that Patrick Bateman and Ronald Reagan were the same person. Like, that's who he had based him off of. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, obviously Reagan is at the end of this movie on the TV, but I do wonder if the author used Reagan as a direct influence in the first place. Oh my God. Yeah. We'll talk about that later, but yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to, to kind of mention how I guess yuppie culture seems to me something that is very much influenced by corporate America, (laughs) which (laughs) makes so much sense. Like now that I really think about it, something I never thought about until I was like watching this film critically. And um, it is so over sterilized, boring and surface level, which like was what all of all these characters in this film are like, even the, the women. Yeah. Um, Bateman's like sexual life, you know, obviously besides the horrible murders, uh, feels flat. 
super flat. Like we never see him having sex with Evelyn, his girlfriend, who is played by Reese Witherspoon. Um, which is super interesting to me because just the fact that we don't see it sterilizes it. Yeah. They they kiss, I guess, but like they have that like one big passionate kiss in the Christmas party, but they feel like they could be just acquaintances. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, like they never seem like they're together. Um and we know that neither one of them is ace because they have affairs with others in their social group. But even then, when we see Bateman having sex with Courtney, it is boring missionary sex and their <laughs> clothes are still on for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Which, listen, I don't want to kink shame because some people really love that shit. But I think for the purpose of dramatics, it's meant to show how even the affairs that the yuppies have with each other are really, really dull. Yeah. And according to Laura Mee, just as Bateman's clothes, apartment, and work and social life are shaped by consumerist ideals, a lifestyle packaged and sold, so too are his romantic inclinations. His monologue on Phil Collins, his attempt at conversation, the music, the wine, the chocolates, all reminiscent of a potentially perfect date night that might have that he might have with Evelyn or Courtney, but here with the bonus of sexual compliance, unquote. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. When he invites the sex sex workers over, he tries to make these, like, right, these perfect dates. But he still also has his own demands. Like, they need to be blonde. They need to have the names that he wants them to have. And they need to be interested in him. (laughs) And me says, quote, he prompts the women to move, pose, and speak as he desires. And asks them, don't you want to know what I do for a living? And he is barely able to conceal his disappointment when they tell him no. (laughs) Because Bateman's life is perfect. Like, Bateman's life is perfect, pretty, and packed in a nice clean box. And he will never be able to have a meaningful relationship with someone. Even though that's what he tells Gene he desires the most. It's actually kind of sad, really. Reminds me of the movie Perfume, the story of a murderer, in a way. Yes, yep. Well, I think for Patrick Bateman, there is also this air of being unique, like of somehow being special and above others. And Mm -hmm. in a way, he is part of an extremely small class in America at this time. So really, this only feeds into his narcissism and feelings of superiority. But what is so funny about this are his needs to also blend in with his group of people Uh like he wants to be unique but at the same time doesn't want to stand out like it's so strange um Mm -hmm. he needs like this attention and recognition for doing what he is supposed to do and that leads really well into our next topic (laughs) the scene in the car where he's like because i want to fit in (laughs) um he is basically a predator among predators so (sighs) patrick bateman is the ideal representation of someone who works on wall street and i'm not trying to generalize here but at the same time there is a type Sure. That works on Wall Street. Um, 
We have all kind of come to learn this because of capitalism and all that bullshit. But on top of this, he is a serial rapist and murderer. So, well, or so he thinks. Right. <laughs> that's that's something else we're going to get into also. Um, it's hard to pin down exactly what is going on in his life because of his mental state, but he knows that something is amiss with himself and he does everything he can to mask this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of which, the use of masks in this movie is actually brilliant for this reason. And we can use this to metaphorically describe what was going on in our country at the time as well. Because of Reaganomics, the war on drugs, high levels of incarceration disguised as pure intentions, we see this really ugly underbelly that comes from these cookie cutter ideas about how life works. Mm -hmm. Um, And Patrick... Uh, is this embodiment of this idea, but rather than show his ugly side, he wants to blend in with his cohorts instead of drawing attention to himself. Well, mainly because he doesn't want to get caught and he doesn't want to be held responsible for his actions, but his self-righteous monologues about social responsibility and environmentalism and charity, like these all speak to this need to cover up the ugliness that he holds inside and it's also something that you see in politics at this time as well. Well, you see it now, too, but it's a way to hide the darkness that's within him. Oh, yes, for sure. There's that uh, iconic image of him wearing the cooling mask <laughs> yeah. to help his face appear less puffy, which is interesting. Um, also, all of his face lotions and masks and moisturizer that he uses for his skin. Another more iconic image is him peeling the moisturizing mask off of his face. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, that mask doesn't hide anything. It's right. a clear sheet, so to speak. So you can still see Bateman under the mask, I suppose. Like this could mean like he is hiding in plain sight. Like you said, he's blending in, but like we can still see him. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. It's like a snake shedding his skin. <laughs> yeah. And sorry, I don't mean to insult snakes like that, but you know. <laughs> uh, according to Brendan Parr for Loyola Phoenix, high levels of narcissism, means to an end thinking, and an extreme lack of empathy represent the dark triad or triad of psychology. Most people have a little bit of everything, but to have... High amounts in each three breeds the type of personalities seen in both film psychopaths like Patrick Bateman and real world ones such as Ted Bundy. To me, Patrick is this brilliant metaphor for American gluttony. He's beautiful and charming and he says the right things until he doesn't. And uh-huh. He cannot live with the fact that some of these people see him for who he truly is, so they have to die. For sure. I think that's why he doesn't kill Jean. Yeah. She doesn't end up seeing him for what he truly is. Mm -hmm. And I know Heron and Turner wanted to do her justice because I guess in the book, I've never read the book, but I guess in the book she marries him. Or at least she officially becomes his girlfriend mm-hmm. after he breaks up with Evelyn. <clears throat> and they sort of give her justice at the end when she discovers his book of disturbing drawings. So by then she sees who he is. But before he like 
has the nail gun to her head. Like she doesn't, she sees what he's saying, but she misinterprets it, you know? Right. And, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen to Jean once the credits roll. Um, but I think it's safe to say that she's not going to pull a Netflix you and become <laughs> just as psychotic as Bateman. <laughs> um, she's going to realize that he's an evil Republican <laughs> uh, who doesn't care about women, children, animals, people of color or poor people. And honestly, you cannot tell me anything otherwise, especially what's happened here with Roe v. Wade being overturned. Uh, Republicans are all about the family, uh, but it's a fucking mask. Yeah. Bateman truly represents rich white Republicans who get to pick and choose who lives and who dies. And we're going to talk more about the timelessness of this film in a second, so I won't go on. But uh, this kind of goes with what we're saying i have a question for you Mm -hmm. and this is like a theory that's like been split Mm -hmm. um i don't think anyone can rightfully agree on what the message is so like i don't feel like there's a wrong answer Mm -hmm. but i want you to know i want you to uh think about uh do you feel like patrick bateman actually killed anyone because the the popular theory is that it was all in his head Okay, so just a disclaimer here. Um, I'm not trying to uh, demonize anyone with mental health issues because I think that that happens in film a lot. And I think that mental health is used as a great metaphor in horror. But I also think that it has really um, solidified a lot of uh, biases and ideas stigmas. stigmas yep about mental health so sure. that being said though um i think he actually has dissociative identity disorder oh okay um i think that he kills people in his head but that he mm. also assumes different identities mm. and i didn't that didn't really click for me until this last viewing um mm-hmm. But I, I honestly think that he is fascinated by the women that he kills also. And he is, uh, he's kind of a conundrum because he is extremely homophobic towards Lewis. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a piece of him that hates these people, but they actually are him. Ooh, which... I've never heard this kind of like theory about it before i love it abby well it creates this cycle of self-loathing um but Mm. because he's also he's also a psychopath he doesn't realize that this is happening in his head like Mm. it's very meta because a lot of the time (laughs) a lot of the time republicans are such whiny babies and they want their way so badly that they don't realize that they are actually the problem so mm. Bateman is kind of like I think that he is a representation of this um but I mean at the same time if you adhere to that theory it still doesn't make any sense because the details get really blurred like did he kill them right did he not do Republicans and yes. their policies really kill people or is it an indirect result We all know the answer is yes, they do kill people, even if they're not physically doing it themselves. And 
I know I'm going off on kind of a tangent here, and this is all very theoretical, but when I watched this movie again, like, I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is meant to kind of explain it in an entertaining way, I guess. Um, So really, when it comes down to it, I think for me, um, Patrick didn't kill everyone that he said he killed. Mm-hmm. I think that he has these fantasies and these um, kind of delusions of grandeur and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and I have a hard time deciding whether or not, like, Paul Allen is really real. Uh-huh. Like, if he is a real person, if he even existed, or, like, if Patrick is Paul Allen. Yes. I love that. Because, Yeah. I, yeah, he, he, Paul doesn't really interact with anyone else except. Right. Patrick. Right. He does right. have like small interactions with others, but Patrick always is in like the same room with mm-hmm. him. So I think that that is a interesting theory and I love that. Yes. Well, the other thing about that is like. Paul Allen always calls him the wrong name as well. Like, he can Mm -hmm. never be like, oh, that's Patrick Bateman. Like, because Patrick Bateman's a loser. Yes. Yep. Yep. So it's almost like a good thing that no one ever knows that he is Patrick Bateman. Yes. Because everyone knows Patrick Bateman is a dork. Yeah. It reminds me of Fight Club a lot in that sure. way. Sure. Oh, a lot of people do compare this to Fight Club. Yes, because yeah. you're right. It is super similar. Yeah. So I love that theory. Uh, <laughs> I used you. to I used to always think that he didn't actually kill anyone mm-hmm. uh, as well. Until I watched this for this episode. And to be honest, I don't really think I ever watched this film critically before this month yeah (laughs) i've seen this movie a few times and i think i've always sort of very passively watched it and i mean i think it was so ingrained into my system that he never actually killed anyone or did anything that i just thought when i watched it this time i actually thought it was revolutionary that i figured out that no he actually did kill everyone and do everything (laughs) And, of course, that was just me being like, oh, my God, I'm so clever. And, of course, no, I'm not. (laughs) But it's because I never, like, really watched the film, I think. And, I mean, Mary Heron has said that she blames herself for the miscommunication surrounding whether or not Bateman killed anyone. And she said that she wished that she could go back and film the ending a bit differently to make it less confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because she very much believes that he also did it which i didn't realize i thought she purposefully left the ending very ambiguous and that was not her intention wow yeah um but yeah after i figured out bateman actually killed everyone i took to the internet to make sure i wasn't just imagining it and <laughs> lo and behold i found this great detailed article by adam james and Zandra uh, harbett Uh, And they write about it. And James and Harbett say, quote, While initially appearing straightforward, the movie unravels at the end, making plenty of people wonder whether or not Patrick Bateman's murders 
even took place. Did Bateman really kill Paul Allen or did his rival move to London? What's the deal with Allen's apartment and why does Bateman's lawyer mistake him for someone else? Is Christian Bale's character actually the serial killer he claims to be? Was all of this just in his head? And they go on to say, Quote, we first witness Bateman's disordered traits in the film's second scene, in which Bateman insults a bartender and tells her that he wants to stab her. Perhaps she doesn't hear him over the music, or maybe Bateman only fantasizes about saying this, unquote. And, quote, Bateman displays this contradictory verbal behavior throughout the film, with bizarre statements that may or may not be said out loud. He tells a model that he works mostly in murders and executions <laughs> as opposed to mergers and acquisitions. Yes. And she and she doesn't bat an eye. He also admits to his unfazed fiance that his need to engage in homicidal behavior on a massive scale cannot be corrected. And one evening, early on in the film, Bateman encounters a random woman waiting to cross the road and proceeds to creepily walk alongside her. In the very next scene, we see Bateman aggressively arguing with some non-English speaking dry cleaners about not bleaching what appears to be bloody sheets. He aggressively loses his cool and even threatens to kill the dry cleaner. When an acquaintance unexpectedly comes in and inquires about the stains, Bateman nervously claims that they're a cranberry cranapple. <laughs> it's cranberry cranapple. <laughs> yes. The best. But they, yes, but they sure look bloody, unquote. So it seems like these, as well as the scene where Bateman's lawyer says that it's impossible that Paul Allen has been murdered because he had dinner with him twice in London. Oh, and the scene where Bateman goes to Allen's old apartment and he tries to clean up the bodies, but they're all gone. And that makes us all think, wow, okay, it looks like he didn't kill anyone and it's all in his head. However, <laughs> I I actually saw past all of this. Um, and James and Herbert say... and. Herbert say, quote, even less open for debate is the first time we actually witness Bateman kill somebody. After asking a homeless man why he doesn't get a job and taunting him relentlessly, Bateman straight up stabs him in the chest before kicking his dog to death. Ugh. It's awful. Uh, compared to various other murder scenes, which come later, this one stands out as firmly grounded in reality, unquote. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't think he did all the murders, right, which is fair to think that because it's kind of left up for to for debate. Yeah. Um, this one for sure is left to reality. So you can't really deny the scene, I think. No. Yeah. Um, so, OK, so that actually happened. But what about Paul Allen? Uh, quote, throughout the entirety of the movie, we see Christian Bale's character repeatedly called names other than Patrick Bateman by various individuals, leading some viewers to question whether or not he really even is Patrick Bateman. However, there should be absolutely no doubt that he truly is who he says he is, and that any misidentifications by other characters are purely their own mistakes. In fact, Identities are mistaken constantly and perpetuity in perpetuity. In the opening scene, while Bateman is having dinner with Craig McDermott, Timothy Bryce, and David Van Patten, McDermott asks, Is that Reed Robinson over there? Are you freebasing? 
Bryce replies, that's not Reed Robinson. Instead, Bryce corrects him and claims that it's Paul Allen. Bateman then steps in and says, it's not Paul Allen. Paul Allen is on the other side of the room over there. The camera then shows us the individual in question who is most definitely not Paul Allen. The first time we meet the real Paul Allen, he mistakes Bateman for Marcus Halberstram, a mistake he never corrects. Bateman brushes this off as logical, telling us that Marcus also works at PMP and in fact does the same thing, does the exact same thing that I do. He also has a penchant for Valentino suits and Oliver Peoples glasses. <laughs> Marcus and I even go to the same barber. And then he says, but I have a slightly better haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Which, debatable. (laughs) Right. For sure. In the same scene, Alan also calls McDermott Baxter, indicating misidentifications are not isolated instances. So Patrick Bateman is not the only one that gets confused with everyone by people. Mm -hmm. Other characters that he works with also get confused by other characters. So... I think it's interesting because this in itself is incredibly ironic because these guys are a product of America's values of individualism, yet they are all the fucking same, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. There's like this weird like error in their logic with wanting to be different because they might be different to the other millions of Americans, but within their 20 million, you know, of all the yuppies, they are exactly the same. Yep. But anyway, James and Herbert Herbert says, quote, the first piece of evidence is when, while having dinner with the private detective investigating Paul Allen's disappearance, Bateman is surprisingly given an alibi for the night of Allen's disappearance. According to Detective Kimball, Allen was verified to have had dinner with Marcus Halberstrom, i.e. the colleague Allen had unknowingly mistaken Bateman for his the entire time. The real Haberstrom, unsurprisingly, claimed he was not having dinner with Alan. Rather, he claimed that he was having dinner with other colleagues, including Patrick Bateman. While it's easy to conclude that Bateman forgot about this dinner, blacked out, or simply imagined killing Paul, it's far more likely that Bateman was actually not at said dinner. We already know mistaken identities are commonplace among the Pierce and Pierce elite. And the film never introduces us to any of the colleagues Bateman supposedly dined with. Thus, it's extremely likely that the real Halberstrom simply mistook a different colleague for Bateman, as did Paul Allen. Thus, providing Allen's murderer with one ultra-lucky alibi, unquote. Oh my god. Yeah, and... They say, quote, first and foremost, Carnes, the lawyer, doesn't even know who Patrick Bateman is, mistaking him instead for Davis and asking him if he's still dating Cynthia. Two characters we've never even met. When pressed, he says, Davis, I'm not one to badmouth anyone. Your joke was amusing, but come on, man, you had one fatal flaw. Bateman is such a dork, such a boring, spineless lightweight. This misidentification of Bateman immediately makes anything that comes out of Carnes' mouth invalid, as he can't even be tasked with keeping his own clients straight. Even after Bateman states very clearly that he is in fact Patrick Bateman, and that he chopped Alan's fucking head off and liked it, (laughs) a disturbed Carnes dismisses it as simply not possible. 
I had dinner with Paul Ellen twice in London just 10 days ago, he tells Bateman. But did he really? Unquote. No, he didn't. <laughs> I don't think he did. I think he confused whoever he had dinner with in London with Paul Allen. So, okay, okay, okay. So what about the women? <laughs> I, I know. People could see my face right now. I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah. So what about the women? It's unfortunately extremely common for sex workers to not get the justice they deserve when they are murdered. Especially the less in dead. Right. Especially in a time period that takes place in 1987. Mm-hmm. But Bateman didn't just murder sex workers. He murdered his friend Elizabeth as well, who seemed well off. I mean, she went to Sarah Lawrence. That's a nice school. Um, I'm pretty sure her body was also in Alan's apartment when he left. Like she, like he, when he left to chase Christy down the hall. I think he left her in the apartment. Either way. I think this scene where he goes back to Alan's apartment is the most confusing one of all because what happened to the bodies and why does the realtor act like nothing is wrong? The key word in this sentence is act because that's exactly what she is doing. She's acting. There is something wrong. And James and Herbert explain it here. Quote, one of the most confusing moments in the film takes place when Bateman shockingly finds Paul Allen's apartment, previously full of dead bodies, spotlessly clean and being shown to potential tenants. But don't be fooled by this clever twist. The apartment really was full of dead bodies, and Paul Allen was definitely living there before he was murdered. With a lovely view of Central Park, Allen's apartment is known to be one of the most expensive properties in New York City. Thus, the owners understandably wanted to get someone living there and paying rent as soon as possible. Rather than call the police upon discovering the closets full of bodies, which would devalue the property val- which would devalue the property value, the owners quietly have the mess taken care of. Hence why the apartment has been given more than just one new coat of paint. The evidence comes when Bateman has a strange but serious interaction with the real estate agent who insistently drops her facade, who instantly drops her facade when Bateman admits he is not her two o'clock appointment. She asks Bateman whether or not he saw the ad in the Times before informing him that there was no ad in the Times. A strangely investigative question. Putting two and two together, she calmly but sternly tells the confused and lucky Bateman that she thinks he should leave not to make any trouble, and to never come back, unquote. And honestly, with all that in mind, it makes that scene especially spooky. Well, yeah, because she's like, holy fucking shit, here's the guy who did it, but I'm not going to blow him in, but I'm standing in the presence of a serial killer. Right. So. Wow. Yes, exactly. I was like blown away. I was like, this makes more sense and it makes it i think scarier so it's actually really interesting because it's this idea of like again politicizing this but republicans Mm -hmm. do all these really fucking terrible things and other republicans know that it's wrong other politicians know that it's wrong but they just kind of sweep it under the rug and they're like nope, we're going to move on because there's money to be made. There's policies that we need to sign into place. Blah, blah, blah. Wow. They would rather let somebody get away uh, and not devalue the property. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And that makes like when I figured that out, like when I was reading this and watching the film, I was like, that makes so much sense. Yep. So much sense. Um, so cool. In my opinion, Bateman actually did kill everyone. He claims to have killed. And James and Herbert think that when he calls Carnes, he's probably over-exaggerating the kill count when he says he's killed 20 to 40 people because they say, quote, while it's easier to imagine someone like Bateman getting away with murdering random homeless people, sex workers, or women he meets while walking home, it's highly unlikely he's remained off the NYPD's radar with upwards of 40 murders, unquote. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I don't agree with this statement. Me neither. No. Because, like the title of this section says, Bateman is a predator among predators, and they can't even figure out who each other is at work, let alone care about what the others are doing in their private lives. Yep. They don't care. Uh, Disenfranchised folk, women, people of color, animals, and children, in the book at least, are all victims of rich white men who simply don't give a fuck. End of story. What? He kills children in the book? I don't know if he kills children in the book, but he definitely abuses children in some way in the book. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, he, like you said, like, he's a predator. He hurts and kills and all people who are, uh, I don't want to say weaker than him, but smaller than him, you know? Well, they have less power, for sure. Less power, for yes. And, um, listen, I know... We hearken Bateman to Republicans, but Democrats can also be predatory too. Yeah, they're such all bad. As <laughs> Andrew Cuomo and Harvey Weinstein were very, very much openly Democratic, and um, they also suck ass. <laughs> so yeah, they're disgusting human beings. Right. So anyway, uh, let us all know what you think about this film. What are your theories around Patrick Bateman? Is he a killer? Is he somebody who thinks he's a killer? Is it kind of both? What do you think? Let us know on our social media. <laughs> yes, I'd be delighted to know. I love hearing theories. Um, so we talk about predators in this last section, but every predator needs a weapon. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about the phallic extensions of Patrick Bateman. So I just want to touch on this really quickly, but I think it's also a really important topic. Uh, the use of phallic symbols in the movie. Patrick is completely insecure in who he is. Um, this is very obvious in multiple scenes, but I think it's very poignant that many objects in his life are phallic in nature. Everyone mm. has seen the cover of this film, right? The picture of Christian Bale holding a knife up. Because he has a thing for stabbing. And <laughs> he also has a thing for rape. Um, both his penis and his knife and the phallic looking chainsaw, along with his goddamn business cards, are weapons. Um, Polly Doyle says in an article for Vice, Bateman has a completely toxic fixation upon status. He's locked in a perpetual dick measuring contest with his interchangeable colleagues, all of whom boast the same lofty title of vice president. In perhaps the most famous scene in American Psycho, the men compare nearly identical white business cards. When Paul, uh, Paul Allen, produces a card the other men deem superior, 
Bateman nearly has a breakdown and his ego is badly bruised. So that is one of the funniest scenes. Oh my god! In the film. It's I know. So it's sad, but it's like fun. It's hilarious. <laughs> Patrick, are you all right? You're sweating. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's so good so yeah dick measuring business cards phallic weapons this is basically masculinity in a nutshell according to capitalism so right i just thought that was a very interesting uh look into how men kind of perceive themselves in this world but let's move on to the next topic um American Psycho, is it surprisingly feminist? Mm-hmm. Upon rewatching this film, I kind of struggled to decide whether or not the feminism was intentional or just a reflection of what a woman's role was in the 1980s. Because um, there are really only three types of women in this movie. There mm-hmm. isn't like a huge variety by any means, but there's Reese Witherspoon's portrayal of an oblivious fiance. Um, there's Chloe Savaney, who is the obedient secretary, and then the sex workers and sexually free women. And I know mm-hmm. that those seem like kind of narrow categories, um, but I think that really shows the lack of variety that this type of environment um I guess, portrays for women or, like, sure. allows women to have. Um, I think that that is actually a really great observation because we are following Patrick Bateman. He's the main character. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we are going to see the women that he surrounds himself with right. purposefully. Right. And it's not women who are, like, that, that are can call him out. Mm-hmm. And, and that is on purpose. You know. Well, the women that do end up dead. Sure. So. Right. It's very chilling. But in an article for Dazed, author Trey Taylor reiterates Guinevere Turner's thoughts on the feminism in American Psycho. And uh, she said, I very much think it's a feminist film. It's a satire about how men compete with each other and how in this hyper real universe we created – Women are even less important than your tan or your suit or where you summer. And to me, even though the women are all sort of tragic and killed, it's about how men perceive them and treat them. So, Gracie, basically what you just said. Um, She goes on to say, it's funny to me because so many women have not seen the film because they assume it's a horrible slasher movie and that always hurts my feelings. (laughs) She goes, I'm a a gay woman. Like, watch my movie. (laughs) Right. Um, And this article is a little bit old, but she says, 14 years later, when someone finally says, I've seen the movie, it's actually a really feminist film. And I think, wow, so all this time you've been thinking that Mary and I just sold out in the 90s and decided to make a horror movie because we thought we were going to get rich. Um, To me, it's most definitely a feminist film. Brett really thought he was writing a feminist book. I remember seeing him speak and really talk about that and how he was actually hurt and shocked that feminists spoke out against his book because, you know, he thought he was writing a feminist book and that's what we saw in it. 
It's just that he went all crazy with it. So it's hard to get past that gruesomeness. Another conversation we had at the time is at what point does it go from satire to exploitation? And not the good kind of exploitation that everybody thinks is so cool, but people getting off on how violent it is. Yeah, when I first saw this film, I was in college and I never thought it was feminist. But again, now that I'm grown, I see it now. (laughs) It's a bit like how Slumber Party Massacre is a feminist horror film. Yeah. Also written by a queer woman, interestingly. Um, Obviously, it's just because like women, just because a woman or queer women are at the helm of a film doesn't automatically make something feminist. But again, much like Slumber Party Massacre, yes, women die horrible deaths, but in both films, the men, the killers, are fools and mm-hmm. they are losers. Yes. Yep. Bateman, I mean, Bale said this, Bateman is a, is a loser. He's a coward and he's boring. If something doesn't fit his narrative, he panics. Yes. Like a, like a little baby. And, um, I mean, even when Lewis comes on to him, yeah, it does. It doesn't fit his narrative. He's yep. like, I mean, he can't even kill him after because I think that's actually really telling because I think I think maybe Patrick is sort of afraid of that side of him. Yes. I think oh, he oh, might. Yeah, we are going to talk about that because that was a huge, sure. huge yes. thing for me when I so, watched this. OK, so I won't go on, but I feel like that is telling, right? But anyway, um, I want to read again from the book, Women Make Horror. Uh, Dr. Laura Lee says, It's not surprising that Bateman's monstrosity is not physically evident. As Stefan Hantke has argued, the body of the serial killer is not a site of abjection, despite what one might expect from the way its appearance is so often staged. Indeed, the vast majority of serial killers lack that one crucial crucial feature which effectively defines the monstrous. Their evil is not written on their bodies. Bateman's good looks play part in a privileged lifestyle that allows him to repeatedly get away with murder. Yet Heron directs Bale in a way that often mocks Bateman's self-obsession and ridicules his sex appeal. A scene in which he films himself having a threesome with two sex workers was directed to be deliberately awkward and ungainly. But he watches himself in the mirror throughout, posing, flexing his muscles, and pointing at his reflection, living his fantasy while totally oblivious to the absurdity of the scenario. (laughs) For Heron and Turner, the books focus on the crisis of masculinity and its response to the rise of feminism was a key consideration in adaptation. Bateman's contempt for women spirals from this crisis, but his status singles him out from other groups on which he also invokes his rage. He murders Al, a homeless man, but not before humiliating humiliating him. His homophobia is apparent in the novel, novel, where he makes no effort to hide his disgust towards Lewis, a closeted gay man in love with Bateman. He also encounters a pride parade, which he states made a stomach turn. Again, we'll talk about this later. When Lewis shows interest in Bateman in the film, he his immediate response, rather than disgust, appears to be panic. He washes his gloved hands and, breaking out in a pale sweat, makes his excuse to leave. I've got to return some videotapes. <laughs> Part of this illusion is the contradiction between his actions and his performative social consciousness. 
We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and and promote civil rights and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women. He tells dinner companions in an early scene. And he also warns a friend, hey, cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. But we know this is just a further part of like his abstraction and that for all of his construction, Bateman is simply not there, unquote. And so I think by highlighting all of this, it's automatically feminist because he you can it's just obvious that he doesn't believe in what he says. Right. Right. And they're making fun of that. And so much like Slumber Party Massacre, they're making fun of hypersexual men who don't know what the hell they're saying. Right. Exactly. I don't know about you, but I guess a lot of men really relate to American Psycho. Like we (laughs) mentioned earlier with Guinevere being like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, my God. Red flag. But. I don't know. I wonder if it's actually their fault that they relate to it or if it's like corporate America's fault. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, my husband had never seen this movie until very recently. And he was like, wow, this is what it can be like working in politics and in offices because that's what he does. Yeah. And he even asked me if it would be super weird if he made his new business card look like Patrick Bateman's because aesthetically, it's actually very easy to read. (laughs) (laughs) To which I... To which I replied, well, it should look like Paul Allen's. (laughs) And then we had a good laugh and decided that maybe it's best if it looks like Don Carlton's from Monsters University, the superior sequel to Pixar's Monsters, Inc. That one is a bit less problematic to base it on. Okay, so funnily enough, my husband also said the same thing about the business cards. He was like, oh, wow, I never realized how classy that is. And I was like, honey, no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, it is like, uh, that's, I mean, it was all done on purpose because, but the fact of that they make it such a big deal in the movie is what makes it funny. Um. But yeah, so for sure, it's a red flag that some men positively relate to Bateman on a very personal level, because in the end, he is a satirical look at the irony of American individualism and yuppies, and he's also a psychotic murderer. Yeah. But what I also think is interesting is that, and maybe this is just me, and you can counter this if it's not your experience, but I don't know many men who like this film or have even seen this film. And like I said... Luke hadn't even seen this film until I showed it to him. And I would say the majority of the people that I know who really like this film are, first of all, queer people, and second of all, women. So I think that, to me, that says a lot. But then I'm thinking, maybe I don't know a lot of men. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... In my experience, the, the men that I know that have seen this film have either... Um, really, (laughs) they have kind of idolized Patrick Bateman because they think he's funny. Mm. Um, or they just think that like the film as a whole is funny and they can step back and look at it and say like, okay, this isn't who I am as a man. But like it is funny. But they can but they can also laugh at the toxic masculinity yes. that is presented. Right. Yes. Which is healthy for sure. Exactly. Um and 
I am going to talk more about like the queerness of this film and our final thought, because um, I think that queer people connect with this film a lot because deep down Patrick has unfulfilled desires to be a Mm -hmm. woman. Interesting. And to experience life as a woman. And he feels extremely threatened by that. But at the same time, he wants nothing to do with the sexual advances of Lewis because he's afraid of AIDS. Ugh, because that was a big part of this time period. Yes, it was extremely misunderstood in the 80s and falsely believed to be just a gay man's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, Patrick is deathly afraid of homosexuality. And, but he uses it for his own pleasure when he has a threesome with two women. So, you know what's, I just thought of this, and maybe you mentioned this later, but even his taste in music is very gay. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and so this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, also, I don't think it was an accident that he talks about Ed Gein, who is famously thought to have worn his mother's skin and clothing. Mm-hmm. While mutilating well, corpses and making a belt out of nipples to wear. Sure. I mean, he watches the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. That's what, uh, you know, the main villain <laughs> does. Yes. Yes. Um, also, the author has said that he based Patrick on his own father. Mm. But then he changed his story and said that the character was based on his own personal thoughts and experiences. So I wonder if, in a way, this is a very universal feeling for men who are raised in capitalist societies. Um, and I'd be interested to know, like, what men think of that theory as well. Um, but, I mean, let's get into our final thought because we kind of touch on all of these topics here. Um So we can all agree that this movie is still relevant 22 years later. (laughs) And it's about American indulgence and all that kind of stuff. But I want to talk about the reason why this film still rings true in a lot of ways today. Um, Especially with the election of Trump, we saw a revival of a lot of the ideas that were brought, brought forth by Reaganism. Um, Make America Great Again was one of Reagan's slogans when he ran for president. I'm not sure if that's, like, well known. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, he used that for his campaign. I don't know if he used it for his initial campaign or for his re-election, but I find it really ironic that this was one of his campaign slogans and Trump literally just, like, yoinked it from him and took credit for its creation and its use. Um, Like, he even tried to get it trademarked, the works. And Patrick's monologue in the restaurant reflects this type of thinking that, like, we need to completely restructure the social fabric of our society while simultaneously making it difficult and in some cases impossible for the very people he is talking about to survive. Like, telling the black homeless man to basically pick himself up by his bootstraps. Like, that was gross, and it made me feel super disgusting, and I can only imagine how that man must have felt in that situation. Um, Thinking that he can get away with raping women for the right price. Like, thinking that 
he, he can condemn the use of drugs while advising his girlfriend that she should take them. Mm. All very hypocritical and extremely reflective of the white privilege that is touted by politicians and privileged white males alike. And it was kind of fuel to the fire for the whole MAGA campaign and Proud Boys and all that bullshit. So speaking of privileged white males, Patrick Bateman would... (laughs) I just kind of like thought of this while I was typing all of this out, but Patrick Bateman would most certainly be trolling Reddit if this movie took place in present times. Like he'd have a 4chan account. Yes, exactly. The absolute king of mansplaining and believing that women exist solely to serve his whims and like trying to stay current and relevant and in the loop. Like he is truly an eighties edgelord, but I right, think, like he goes to like all the popular restaurants. Like yeah. he goes to see Les Mis, which was the big, the big Broadway show to see at the time. Like, every, and he even has a poster of Les Mis, and is and it's just like, oh my god, and it's Les Mis <laughs> again. Like very gay themes. He's going to sure. musicals. <laughs> like, yeah, come on now. Sure. And I'm not saying that only gay people like musicals, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. There's a lot of queer <laughs> representation on Broadway. It's great. Why would sure. you not like it? Um, of course. So I think that it really speaks to how men have been brought up in our society for a very long time. Um, Polly Doyle writes for Vice, American Psycho is similar to other films that came out around the same time like Fight Club and American Beauty. Here we have a nihilistic protagonist, a vaguely anti-capitalist story, and a director keen to make a statement about the cultural decline of America. Yet the film holds up in ways its contemporaries do not. Tyler Durden and Lester Burnham rebel against a world that young people would now see as paradise. Both men are engaged in a self-pitying lament at being doomed to a life of middle-class comfort and working a steady, relatively well-paid job. American Psycho offers a glimpse into the psyche of sociopathic corporate elites who still very much hold the reins of power today. Bateman, unlike other famed antiheroes, is also portrayed in an unromantic light. He is completely pathetic and socially inept. Mm. This helped ensure that Heron and co-writer Guinevere Turner's work would remain widely interpreted as a feminist film, in spite of its depiction of graphic graphic violence against women. It's rare that a film looks at this topic of materialism and masculinity and deconstruction in such deconstructs it in such a grisly and humorous way. I think this is where Mary Heron really shines, not only in her direction, but screenplay as well. It also adds to this nightmare that Bateman is living, explains Garrett McDowell, a 21-year-old YouTube film reviewer. He can't differentiate between grisly fantasies and his life of wealth and vanity. Mm. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 has also thrown it into new bizarre relief. In American Psycho, Trump is an almost mythical figure, always Mm. found in a restaurant you can't get a reservation in or the club slightly too exclusive to grant you VIP access. He's part of the scenery of Patrick Bateman's life, 
from the Manhattan skyscrapers featured in the movie to the copy of The Art of the Deal found on his desk in the book. Bateman aspires to wear the most expensive designer clothes, eat the finest cuisine, and live in the most luxurious apartment in the most sought-after part of New York City. He's constantly looking older over his shoulder for Trump, thinking on several occasions that he's seen him. Yeah, that I didn't really notice before until I watched it this time. I was like, wow, he mentions Trump, I think, twice in the yes. movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. Think he, or no, he says, is that Ivan, uh, Ivana Trump? Yes. Who was his wife at the time. Yes. And it wasn't. <laughs> and then he thought he saw his car and he was like super excited about it. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Right. So I think that's kind of haunting, too, that like Trump ran on the same kind of ideals that Reagan did. And this film is supposed to take place during the Reagan era. And there is this like ghost of Trump all throughout the movie. So right. I don't know. I just spooky. It is really spooky. It it truly, truly is. Um, But I mean, always in the background um, in Patrick's apartment, (laughs) we see either porn or horror movies being played and these films that he's watching directly influence his later actions as he like films the two women having sex and it kind of mimics the porn that he was watching and then he murders a woman with a chainsaw she tries to flee from him and although this is supposed to kind of mock what the moral majority thought caused the issues of hyperviolence in young people during that time. We know that Patrick is the way he is because he is a psychopath that doesn't get the help that he needs. Yeah, he doesn't have, he doesn't think on his own. Even when he murders people or has sex with people, he can't think of his own clever way to do things. He has to be inspired by porn or horror movies. Yes, exactly. He has no original thought in his brain. Yes. Um, We also see that no one has ever corrected his actions because he is a rich white male. And we know, statistically speaking, that this is the population that is most likely to perpetrate abuse and violence and assault. And this is not new. And... It's also not a relic of the past. Like, this is currently happening, and it continues Mm -hmm. to happen. So in a way, this movie is um, a time capsule, but it's also, Mm -hmm. like, um, (laughs) fortune-telling. You're right. It's kind of predicting the future at the same time. Um, And I think that the most ironic and perhaps most chilling thing about this film and this character is that, like we were talking about before, many young males will identify with it on an unhealthy level. And it kind of becomes the thing about, like, how people will identify with the character of, like, Joker or V from V for Vendetta. Like, they align themselves with satirical or fictional characters like Patrick Bateman that are meant to represent the worst parts of society. And they use it as a moniker for being misunderstood. So... Not realizing that at least Patrick Bateman is a joke. He's a literal joke. Yes. That's how he was played by Christian Bale. That's how he was written 
by Ellis, Turner, and Heron. And that's what all women see. And all men who understand that, that's what they see. But yeah, anyone who has a little screw loose in some way, who thinks that they're maybe misunderstood, like you said, might will, will see it differently, which is a little bit creepy. Yes. So um, I think it's important to note also that all of these, it comes back to the politics of the time and, and that kind of thing. And it is important to note that the policies that Reagan put in place are still in effect today. And Patrick is the personification of those ideals and, you know, how people who are kind of in line with that type of thinking, this is how they treat other people. And this is how minorities end up becoming harmed or groups of vulnerable people. And it's important to pay attention to what's going on politically because (laughs) it's going to affect generations beyond us yeah we need to start paying attention and you need to you need to get off tiktok i hate to say it i hate to be a mom the mom (laughs) voice get off the tiktok (laughs) you do i'm serious it's like why i had a babysitter for sam my son and she got, she was 20 something. She got all of her information from TikTok. No, no, no. And no, it no, was no. wrong. It was wrong. And I was like, yikes. It's like, you're a grown adult, basically. Like, get off the phone. Get off. And I, like I said, like, I hate to be like the mom right now, but it's like, these are distractions. Mm-hmm. And you, people are being distracted by things that don't matter. Yes. And so things that do matter are literally taken right out of our pockets and we're being robbed of our basic rights because we're not paying attention and it's um i'm not saying everyone is not paying attention but the majority of us are and i i admit that i was one of them for a while and i really recently started becoming more active in my community which is super important um i think i've mentioned this before Maybe just to talking to people, I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but um, we don't go to local uh, events. Uh, our generation doesn't mm-hmm. do, doesn't get involved in local politics. Um, yeah. We don't go to um, like meetings, town meetings. We don't do that our gen- because our parents taught us not to. And that's, you know, that's kind of on them in a way. But um, we were never taught to get involved in local politics. And... Um, Everything starts local and it branches out. Yes. You know, nobody nobody expects anybody to be going marching in Washington, D.C., especially if you don't live there. Um, but uh, what how you can help is get local and get involved. And I know we all have anxiety. Trust me. Like, it's tough, especially after the pandemic, to get out there and do stuff. But uh, we got to. We really gotta, because the people who are going to these town hall meetings are your grandparents, mm-hmm. who are Reagan people. Yes. Yes. So we need to show up, because those are the voices that are being heard. Like, I know we post on social media. I do it too. It doesn't do anything. You have to literally show up or call. 
Yes. And I know it's hard to hear, but it's true. That's what we need to do. Yep. I 100% agree with you. And I just want to point out that the reason why we didn't have another era of Trump was because of black women showing up to vote. So if you are a white woman, get your ass to the fucking polls. Like... Do your research, do your due diligence, and get there because it doesn't just affect you. It affects people of color. It affects Latinx people. It affects gay and trans people and, like, everyone in those communities. These policies affect them, and now they are starting to affect you and your rights, so you're finally paying attention, which is good, but... At the same time, like, this is what people in these minority groups or so-called minority groups have been dealing with since the Reagan era, since before the Reagan era. So they know, they get it, and we need to show up and support them as well. We all just need to support each other and do the right thing. And even though we're frustrated with the government, like I was talking to Gracie about how I feel like my voice doesn't even matter in this government, it actually does. Because when you stop showing up and you stop voting, that's when you start losing your rights. And this whole Roe v. Wade being overturned is a direct reflection of that. Because the Supreme Court has been taken over by Republicans. So that's my rant. That's it. (laughs) No, that's a good rant. Um, Yeah. So basically, in a nutshell, get your ass out of your chair and go vote and go to town hall meetings. Mm-hmm. I I am saying this right now. I dare all of you to go to a town hall meeting this year. One. Just one. I dare you to do it. You don't even have to stay for the whole thing. Nope. Just go. Just go. You don't have to talk. Just show up. Just sit in a chair and listen to other people talk if you don't feel like talking. Also, but I dare you to go to one. And uh, if you want to share it with me, share it on our social media. <laughs> yeah, for real. Tag us. Take a picture of it if you can and tag us. But also yeah. look around at who is sitting at that town hall meeting. Look around. I guarantee you. Listen, so Luke goes to a lot of town hall meetings and he uh, is 36, going to be 37 this year. The majority of the time, he is the youngest person in that room. (laughs) The only one who is younger than him is the mayor of the town that we live in. Holy cats. Yeah. We are actually really lucky we have a young mayor um, because he knows what's up. But um, everyone else is older than my husband, who's almost 40. My God. Let that sink in. (laughs) Okay, there you go. We've said our piece. (laughs) We've mommed you enough for one day. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to this month's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Uh, If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash Nancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop is in our like is in our show notes and a link to patreon is also in the show notes so please check it out 
Yes, and we know that times are tough right now. <laughs> Gas is like a million dollars a tank. Oh my God, for sure. But a free way to help the show is to follow us on social media, Twitter at Good Morning Nan and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. Black lives matter and trans lives matter. So check out this episode's show notes to see how you can donate and or help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.